Greetings and welcome to Surf's Up, a Beach Boys podcast safari. My name is Mark Dillon, author of 50 Sides of the Beach Boys, and I'm here today with my good friend Phil Migliorati, who also runs the Pray for Surf blog. Hello, Phil. Hello, Mark. Looking forward again to this conversation. Let's get going. We're very excited about today's episode because we're talking to somebody who has played with the Beach Boys for a long time. Bobby Figueroa joined the Beach Boys band in 1974, playing drums and percussion for many years, many shows, studio sessions until 1988. He told me he's got lots of great stories to tell. So without further ado, Mr. Bobby Figueroa. Hello, hello, hello. How's everybody doing? Doing great, Bobby. Hello, Bobby. Good to meet you. Uh, nice to meet you guys, too. Thanks for having me on today. Oh, our pleasure. Uh, are you coming to us today from your home in Glendora, California? I am coming to you from my small little hometown of Glendora, California, in the San Gabriel Valley, right up against San Gabriel Mount foothills. And uh, we're about, um, you know, 20 miles or so from the beach. But, you know, I, I get there every chance I get anyway. And it's my, my great little hometown where I grew up. How have you been faring during this lockdown? You know, pretty good, pretty good. I, I'm happy to say that uh, nobody in my family's been directly affected, and I, I worry more about them than me. But uh, you know, I we fared very well. I, I sure miss playing. You know, uh, that's the only thing that's kind of got gotten me down a little bit. And uh, but uh, I'm very, uh, I'm very, you know, keen on, on on keeping myself alert and well, and fighting for all the right things. You know what I mean? And and uh, we're good here. Everybody's happy. That's good to hear. I was wondering, do you, you have a setup there where you can play your drums? Oh, yes. My, my, my whole house is just rigged for me playing. Um, I, I just like to just, at any given moment, start to play something, or I'll think of a song or, or a tune from anybody and, and immediately want to go do something with it. So I like playing here at home, and I, I try not to bug my neighbors with it, but sometimes <laughs> I just can't help it. I'm sure they feel blessed. Well, I get compliments from them. They're they're very good neighbors, and uh, I'm glad that I don't bother them too much. I, like I said, I'd rather be out playing right now, but we know that we all kind of have to bite the bullet right now and wait a little bit. Hey, uh, Bobby, can I? You're talking about drumming. Can I ask you a drumming question? I I drummed for about 20 seconds when I was a teenager in a, a, a garage band that uh, uh, was a lot of fun, but you know, not very good. But um, What's the difference for you between playing a song that and we'll use the Beach Boys? I mean, you know, you're, you're up there to play a song that's already been recorded by a different group and you're playing the drum beat, the drum track versus uh, maybe hearing a song that you're going to bring the drum sound, the drum track to. Um, totally different experience for you or I'm not even sure how to ask the question, but. Well, I, I think I know what you're trying to get at, and that's, you know, my style of playing uh, when I first joined the group was totally from another another plane. Um, you know, of course, growing up here in Southern California, I was a huge Beach Boy fan. Okay, we all were. Um, the surf craze was was rampant. Uh, there was even a surf band at, of notoriety at my high school that I went to called the Safaris. You may remember them. Yeah, they sure. Did the song, they did the song Wipeout. So we were all very keen. On, on that kind of music, but but prior to that, I had been trained in so many different kinds of, I, I played classical music, I played jazz a little bit, and, and just, you know, I was in a marching band, I was a, 
total band nerd in high school. I mean, I was a real, a real dork because I loved to play so much. But it all, it all led me to the Beach Boys. And when that opportunity came, uh, I was quite prepared. I was quite prepared and quite happy to be in that situation. What I had to do at that point, might more directly answer your question, is that I had to calm myself down a lot and and try to fit into that role and how how basic those drum tracks were and how at the same time so very artful because they were they were created by you know Dennis and and Hal Blaine and the people who did those sessions who left me so many wonderful things to fit into that uh, I had to then learn how to calm myself down and fit more into that role. And what helped me so, so very much was Dennis. Dennis was such a powerful drummer, such a great, great guy. He hired me, by the way. He was the guy that, that said you now when, when it came down to it, which is another story altogether. But, but Dennis showed me the difference between playing in a small room as opposed to a stadium. Uh-huh, sure. You know, there was quite a quite a change for me because I was so busy before. I'd played in tons of nightclubs and and I played all these, you know, different kinds of music, so uh, jazz, rhythm and blues, uh, you name it. I was so happy to do all of it because I just wanted to play. But but then fitting in with the Beach Boys um, was was a matter of listening to Dennis and taking lessons from him and 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 emulating the wonderful things that that Hal Blaine had left on those recordings and, and fitting my old style to that. Well, let me just follow that a little bit. And then Mark, uh, take us uh, in the, you know, the start off direction. I kind of jumped in here, but uh, you mentioned uh, Dennis kind of uh, mentoring, tutoring you. Um, any, any idea how he felt about some of the great Beach Boy tunes having a Hal Blaine drum track if you will and not a dennis wilson one is that something that ever came up i never heard him complain once about it um i think that he truly admired what what he was then charged to to fulfill on on live shows um you know it's it's really a, a big difference when people come to hear you when they come to hear those songs as opposed to just covering material you know it, it was more like for him, it was more like him putting his style onto that, and he he borrowed a little bit from me, and I I I learned a lot from him. I mean, it's really funny that you know he we would go out just palling around sometimes if we'd leave the studio and go somewhere, and he would introduce me to sushi chefs as as his sensei, as his teacher, as his master, and I which I thought was was really funny because here I was I was learning much from him, but. But it really did. We did really kind of meld into each other in a way, and that's what made me so comfortable. Is that he respected the way I played, and and I respected the he the way he played, and we learned something from each other, and we all learned a great deal from from Hal Blaine. I have to ask. I read that you saw the group perform way back in 1962 at the Azusa Teen Club. Do you remember that? Oh God, yes. That was that was uh, the the hippest place in town. Like at that time, you got to remember, I was a junior high school, and the surf craze was was taking off as well as the surf music. And I joined a surf group called the Outsiders, which was made up of guys from my 
my school. And um, I was so into it that there was a one place which was a teen club at this armory in, in the uh, next, adjoining town of Azusa, which was only a few miles away. And so I'd get there any way I could because for a dollar, for a buck, you could get in and listen to four or five bands play. <laughs> I mean, so I would frequent the place whenever I could get there and um, try to get a ride any way I could because I wasn't old enough to drive yet. But uh, <laughs> but then, well, I just kind of um, went there. And I let me tell you some of the groups that played there. Okay, I mentioned the safaris from my high school. I, I heard them play Wipeout before it was even recorded. They, you know, were friends of mine, and I used to go to the rehearsals. So I saw the safaris there, the pyramids. Um, I saw uh, the Righteous Brothers there, wow. the Coasters. Um, there was a lot of groups that played there. Uh, and for a buck, you could see three or four or five bands in one night. And one night, it just so happened that I went and the Beach Boys were playing. What were they like in this early show? You know, it was their early bit. I saw there's actually some footage of them yeah. that uh, my wife, Joanne, pulled up for me the other day and showed that someone had uh, videotaped them playing in that armory, in that basketball court, you know, uh, back in those days. And um, it was the Safari's manager, Dale Smolland, who, who had invited them to play and they'd filled them, filmed them. And um, that's when uh, David Marks was in the band and and uh, they were wearing the Pendletons and doing the dance steps and everything. <laughs> it was so very cool to see because that's exactly what I saw when I went to see them. And I, I thought to myself, you know, I was a drummer, but my family is a very vocal family. We all sing. Every, everybody loves to sing. And um, I, I admired the fact that their voices were so great. And I love that, too. That's what drew me to like them. Is not only could they, they you know, they were a decent surf band and play those kind of songs, but also those harmonies were just inc incredible to me. So, so that years later, real, 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 uh, flying forward, um, when I finally got on stage with them that first night and I heard those vocals, it just, it just sent uh, shivers down my spine and and I'm goose gave me goosebumps. It was the greatest thing in the world. Well, Bobby, when they uh, do a movie of your life. Um, that, that's going to be the foreshadowing, uh, epi you know, episode or, or chapter. I mean, just amazing that you'd be there and you said 62 and then um, decades later, a couple decade later, you're uh, you're in the band with them on stage in front of hundreds of thousands of people. Unbelievable. It really, really was. And an ironic part about it is at the time when I was in my band, The Outsiders, and I was, a, you know, it just just starting to play professionally. And um, I was, you know, like 14 years old or something like that. Um, uh, I had a girlfriend. <laughs> I had a girlfriend and, and I, I went to uh, her home one time and, and her mother said to me this, this precise thing. She said, why don't you join a band like the Beach Boys? <laughs> and I said, and I looked at her and I laughed and I said, that's not ever going to happen. I mean, come on. They're a family. They're brothers. They're cousins and stuff. I have no chance in hell ever being getting that opportunity. So, you know, forget. That's not going to, you know. And that's how ridiculous I thought it was. But then, you know, we know what happened later on. In fact, I did see her uh, many years later. And I and I approached her. I said, hey, guess what? 
you got your wish. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let's talk about how, how you got to that place. Uh, you were in a bunch of bands, like you were saying, mm-hmm. and uh, one of them, I believe, was called Poverty Train yeah. uh, with Carly Munoz, who, of course, exactly. went on to play keyboards for the Beach Boys starting in the early 70s. And, and the way I understand it is he recommended uh, that you audition for the group uh, as a percussionist. Yeah, it's very funny, you know, uh, how things work out sometimes. Um, Carly had had just moved to L.A. Um, when I was with the Poverty Train. It was an eight-piece rhythm and blues band, okay? Let me explain about them. They're local guys from Los Angeles and, and me. Um, Carly was in the band, was not in the band. I was in the band, and I needed a keyboard player because we were about to go, go to Hawaii for six months to play in Waikiki at a club. And so I went to the musician's contact service and they informed me of a gentleman that was living behind the building there in Hollywood and and that he was a very good keyboard player. So I went, knocked on Carly's door and he had just arrived from New York via, uh, you know, from Puerto Rico via New York. And uh, and I heard him play and um, went, wow, and then took him to our rehearsal room with just him and I, and we jammed together, him on the B3 organ and me on the drums for about an hour straight without saying a word, just played. And I thought it was so fantastic that I immediately hired him to to come to Hawaii with with the, with the train. And um, it was great, real forward, that band broke up. So now we, we come to 1974, and I'm playing at a nightclub in Pasadena called Crystal Closet. And um, it was on was on uh, Colorado Boulevard, the parade and everything. Um, and I get a phone call, and uh, it happened to be from Carly. And I said, hi, Carly. And he was, yeah, well, we're so glad to talk to each other. He says, I'm playing with the Beach Boys now. And I went, ah, oh, that's fantastic. So great. How, how is it? Is it wonderful? And he said, yes. He goes, it's wonderful. But I also want to tell you that uh, I told them about you, and they want to hear you. And so I said, well, you know, great, sure. Here I am in this nightclub, and what am I? What have I got to lose? So um, I went the next day to Brother Studio, Brother Records in Santa Monica, and uh, there was several other guys there that were going to audition at the same time. And I figured, you know, I had a small chance in hell to, to win, but I was the first one to go into the studio and audition. And one by one, uh, the members of the band First, uh, first Carl, and then Al, and then Mike, you know, but one at a time asked me to play certain fields on my drum kit. And um, I said, sure, and uh, accommodated every one of them until they all left. And I said, well, okay, I guess I'm done. So I was leaving out the back door of the studio with my kit. And uh, all of a sudden, I heard Dennis shout to me from, from one of the offices and say, hey, where are you going? And I I just kind of went, well, you know, you have to audition these other guys, right? I I got a gig tonight at the Crystal Closet. Ooh, you know. <laughs> and, 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 uh, and he said, no, come here. And he pulled me into a room. And he said, um, he just looked at me and quite frankly said, um, we want you to go on the road with us. And I surprised, you know, as hell. I said, when? He went, tomorrow. <laughs> of course. Right write down your address. We'll send a car and we'll see you in, in uh, Seattle tomorrow night. And that's how it started. 
Oh my, Bobby, take me back to to you that you. They said each guy is saying play a different feel for for those of us who wouldn't understand what that means. Oh, it's not like okay. Play help so, me run for us. You, they're, sure, they're, sure. So so uh, picture Carl for instance coming in and saying, um, play, um, you know, uh, a a straight ahead four you know four four beat a straight ahead rock and roll beat. Doom 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 boom. You know, just straight ahead rock and roll. And then he left. And Al came in and said, play a shuffle for me. 6-8 feel. Okay. Then then Michael going like, you know, play uh, a similar type rock and roll beat. You know, maybe a little vari vari variation of what Carl had asked me to play. And I said, sure, but what I didn't realize till I started playing with him, what, what had happened was Carl had asked me to play um, Surfing USA. Al had asked me to play Help Me Rhonda, and Mike <laughs> had asked me to play California Girls. <laughs> that's a, I didn't know it at the time, but that's what they were asking me to play without saying the name of the song, but I kind of just kind of went along with it and later it came to me going, oh, <laughs> I get it. <laughs> That's what they wanted me. They wanted to make sure that I could fulfill those little beats there. Very and cool. so um, Ricky Fatar from The Flame was was their drummer at that point, right? Because Dennis still had Correct. his, uh, his yeah. hand uh -huh. injury. Well, that's what Dennis said. Is he wanted to go out front and play more keyboards than, than play drums. So I was basically taking over his role. Uh, and, and of course, there was Ricky Fatar, who was fantastic drummer, wonderful, you know, musician and a great, great uh, interpreter of fields. And um, I learned a lot from him, too. I shouldn't leave that out, that I learned a great deal from playing along with Ricky, because at some points we would have two drum sets on the stage and um, it would be left, left and right. And that's how they would mix them in the house his kit would be on the right and mine would be on the left or vice versa. And we could play along together um, in, in, in unison and, and it sounded really, really great. And it would really was a, a kick in the pants to be able to do that. I, I did that with Dennis as well, but uh, you know, Ricky was there and it was a great experience playing with him too. Interesting time in the group's uh, career because you know, they were slowly building up momentum on the live scene. They'd put out some good albums that got, you know, some good reviews and decent sales. But of course, they, they were on the verge of this big renaissance with, with Endless Summer coming out and, and, and everything exploded. So you were there for that, that transition. Could you tell me about that? Yeah, it was a very fortunate time to, man, lucky to pop right in right then because I can tell you for a fact that when I joined the band, for instance, the first gig was in a at a college, and a lot of the subsequent gigs, because we did a, a a tour of the South right after that, and there were mostly schools, and uh, you know colleges, field houses, you know, in other words, five thousand seaters, twenty five hundred seaters, places like that. Um, not much was happening. Then all of a sudden, um, uh, uh, endless summer came out. The repackaging. Um, Jimmy Gersio was playing bass, who was, you know, who Jimmy Gersio is. I think yes, everybody okay. knows that he was, you know, the, the, the man who discovered Chicago, the Buckinghams, 
blood, sweat, and tears. He just had a way of finding gold, and it, it always has. And uh, he was playing bass, and he was a great bass player, by the way. He knew what he was doing. He sounded fantastic on the bass. He could play. And, um, you know, it just all of a sudden the, the group took a different turn. And within a year, we went from um, the 5,000 seaters to all of a sudden I, I found myself at Wembley Stadium playing in front of 100,000 people. <laughs> wow. Bobby, in retrospect now, um, the, before the endless summer renaissance, were they just kind of going through the motion? I mean, were they feeling like they, you know, they're they were on the minor league circuit and no. you know, was no. it depressed? To, I don't want to make words into their minds, but were they depressed or how was it going? You know what? They were still the Beach Boys. It, it, it was it was very evident to me that Carl expected excellence on stage every night. There was no oh, it's only a gig. You know what I mean? Yeah. There was. I never ever got that feeling. In fact. I was scared to death of ever getting that look from Carl. Like, <laughs> what are you doing? You know, it's like, if if you're going to pick up that tambourine, you better play the crap out of it. You know, not <laughs> don't just pick it up because I'm not going to stand for that. I, I always got the feeling like, you know, that that was the old story with Carl was because he, you know, we all know that Carl pretty much was, was the band leader. Okay. Um, in Brian's absence, Carl ran that band. It, there, it had to be excellent. And if you've goofed up a little bit, he just kind of look at you. And <laughs> and if you did it again, he he'd come over by your side and and say, "Are you all right?" <laughs> and then if there was a third time, God forbid, you were on your way home because that was it. He was not going to stand for it. So it's like to me, it always demanded excellence, and I thought I had a pretty good work ethic anyway. I mean. First of all, you can imagine how happy I was just to be there. And I wasn't about to, to treat it lightly. And then in Carl's, being there with Carl and working with him, I learned how to step up my game to not only be there, but excel every night because he did. So, you know, I never had that feeling that we were ever going through any kind of emotions at all. Never. What was that first show like? I believe it was in Tacoma, Washington. Yeah, it was at Tacoma, and uh, it was really, <laughs> oh boy, it was really, I was scared, you know, <laughs> I messed up because, <laughs> okay, here's the thing is, as I was getting ready to get downstairs, I lost track of time and pretty soon it was like, oh geez, everybody's downstairs already and I raced down there and I got that first look from Carl like, mm-hmm, because everybody was waiting <laughs> and so I was like, oh man, I screwed up already, you know, it was like, oh no. So then we went and did the gig, and um, we, I know I was um, trying to let off some nervousness, so I was wandering up and down the hall backstage at the uh, at this uh, auditorium we were playing and for about 5,000 people, and um, I started singing because I'm, I've always sang, and it, no matter what group I was in, I sang. So, And I don't even think that they realized before then that I could sing. So when I, when I was singing... I got a look from, from, from Alan and then another look from Carl and they went, Oh, you can sing. And so it kind of helped me to, and they both came over and said, look, just have fun. You know, it's all right. You know, you're going to do great. Don't worry about it. And so I went up and, you know, realized that I didn't really have a, a, a real rehearsal before this show. 
and I was mostly playing percussion, so I went, you know, th that much I can do without without being sounding too terrible. I, I think I can pull this off. Um, Got to realize all my training is coming into play now. I, I was ready for this moment. I practiced and practiced at six hours a day at school. I played and I played and I played and I was ready. And um, so when I did, I was just, like I said, when I heard those first harmonies come out of them, I just, it blew my mind. You know, the hair stood up on my arms and I was, I almost wanted to cry. It sounded so beautiful. Um, and I, it loosened me up and then we played and um, it, the show went pretty well. And I was just in heaven. I was just, you know, on just re really way on a, a real high, you know, a real high, a natural high um, afterwards. And they just kind of went, okay, you know, all right, you know, all right. And Dennis, uh, said, come on, we're going bowling. And uh, <laughs> he went across the, the campus to, he made him open up a bowling alley for us somewhere in that little town. And uh, we went bowling that night. <laughs> and Dennis asked me a very funny question. And um, he, he just kind of real serious came over to me and said, you know, like, so what do you think? But at the same time, something else happened and you know i it was a really embarrassing moment and, and it was like i i can't really get too far into it but i i'm gonna write about it one day but it was very very funny because you know i told him that you know he he'd missed an opportunity and that's all i'm gonna say for now but he <laughs> he laughed and laughed and laughed and and we both did and that kind of broke the ice between me and dennis and and uh, we were we were on really good terms after that he was a great guy well, Bobby, it seems that the uh, Beach Boys were, you know, uh, welcoming, uh, affirming, you know, that kind of thing. But was there how, was there a big differentiation between you guys who were in, you know, playing in the band and you know the actual Beach Boys themselves? How, how did that dyna relational dynamic work? Well, like I said, um, Carl was very adamant that the band had to be excellent. Got to get that straight the band had to be good. You couldn't just be there and that, and for him to spend a lot of time with you, making sure that that happened, um, he would have to get on a personal level with you. And, and he did. So the Wilsons were very warm, very inviting. They, they never, you know, really told you how to play. They let you play and would affirm, you know, would, would, would compliment you. So, I mean, the relationship, right away was very warm and very receiving and, and you felt like, you know, you cared about them because you, you felt like they cared about you. You knew that they were the principals and they, they were the guys and that you were there to augment that. So for me, it was just a matter of, uh, I'll do my best, you know, my, my darndest to, to, to make my presence here worthwhile for everybody. And I was always, um, you know, re really, uh, you know, they were always really grateful that I, I felt that way. You mentioned uh, a second ago that uh, they discovered that you could sing. So I, I imagine it wasn't too long before you were adding vocal parts uh, to the performances. And of course, Sail on Sailor had been Blondie Chaplin's signature song, but he left in late 1973. I know Billy Hinchy uh, sang it for a while, but but it became yours uh, at a certain point, right? Right. Um, it was very, at first, it was like, Carl 
came and said um, at the, at soundcheck, we we had we were somewhere and we were doing a soundcheck, and um, he had heard me sing already, and we had you know sat together at the hotel and sang some songs, and um, I guess I was auditioning then too, but um, he all of a sudden said, um, "Give him a mic." He looked at me and, and, and looked at the sound man and said, give him a mic. And it wasn't really well received by everybody. You know, it's like uh, a couple of guys went, oh, well, you know, I don't know, you know. But you got to remember <laughs> their vocals and how many there were, and we just weren't covering them. There wasn't enough voices. Um, not, a, you know, it was like we need more people to sing because there are this many parts in this song and we don't have that many voices. You know what I'm saying? Yes. So so once Carl gave me my first part was in um, Field Flows. And I, and I should uh, mention also that some of the music was new to me. And when we talk about it being going through the motions, it wasn't because I was learning new material as I was going. We were doing The Trader. We were doing Long Promise Road, Marcella, tunes like that. Those were which, great concerts back then. The ones which I got were to go wonderful. To. Yes, like. yes. Thank you. There were wonderful songs and great concert songs, great rock and roll songs that were newer and from the Holland album and, and Surf's Up that were really good rock and roll songs. And so I was getting an education as to who the Beach Boys really, really were. So in order for them to cover a lot of the vocal parts, eventually everybody warmed up and started coming over to me privately and saying, you know, would you mind singing this part and this song? I've I've been doing it for 20 years and I'm kind of tired of it, you know, and, <laughs> and I kind of, would you, do? and I'm like, sure, you know, and I was just gobbling up parts like a sponge because all of a sudden, you know, we could, we could expand and, and they wanted to sing different parts. They didn't want to sing the same part all the time. You know what I mean? So it was like, uh, now, now we could trade parts. Now we could do different stuff and they had to be precise, mind you, because, you know, you don't add lip Beach Boy parts. You try to do that, and it's a train wreck, okay? Everybody sounds like crap if you don't do the right part. Brian's very meticulous, and this is how the part is written, and this is what you will sing. But I was happy to do so because look who I was singing with. <laughs> uh, you. you know, my teachers were fabulous. My teachers were were these iconic voices of, of you know, of of you know, legendary, legendary proportions, all these great voices, Carl Wilson, Al Jardine, Mike Love, Brian Wilson, it was just fantastic. So I was, you know, being fed parts and it was it was really an exciting experience for me because finally it culminated them going, why don't you do Sail on Sailor? And I, and I did. Wow. I'd love to hear more about this, uh, you know, post endless summer era and, and this great popularity. I mean, what was it like being jetted around? I mean, sometimes I think, you know, there were multiple shows being done in one day and just like huge crowds. And it, yeah. it, it's like, it's, it's like Beatlemania. Yeah, it really, what it was, the, the, uh, the popularity soared. It, it just, it just zoomed. Like I said, man, timing is everything. Right. And, um, when I came along and this started to happen and there were funny things, we went from, you know, from cars, renting our own cars and driving ourselves. You know, I used to go with Dennis because he, he would get us there quick. And, <laughs> and he, he, you had to hold on, you know what I mean? But but he always got us there in, in good stead. And and we'd stop and, and fool around and still make it on time. And um, 
it went to the the charter planes the the prop planes that you know that were a little bit you know older in nature but you know they got us there you know i got a lot of pictures of those planes and, and the stuff that we that we took and and then it finally got to the point where okay now we're now we're doing stadiums every day so let's get let's get a jet you know let's let's get uh two jets let's get one for the meditators people so people can have a respite and meditate and and be peaceful and then the other one you can do whatever you want and we did and uh <laughs> it was it was kind of funny you know that you know we had two planes you know at one point and then finally we all you know agreed and, and migrated onto one big plane not that it was that big but it, it held 25 people the Bach 111 and and that's all it had seat belts for so that was the entourage right there that was everybody and then we had two sets of equipment a and b systems crisscrossing across the united states so like like you said we could play two different venues in one day the b system would be at the state fair somewhere or or smaller venue in the afternoon get back on the plane and fly again and play a nighttime show at at a, at a nice concert venue or stadium that night. And uh, it worked very, very well. And uh, you had to be on your toes, but and it was a little tiring, but they knew how to travel because you remember they've been doing it for a long time. So they made it easy. It still was hard because at one point we were doing, you know, 180 cities, 200 cities a year. Wow. So uh, Ricky was gone uh, in the fall of 1974. Dennis got back behind the drums. Yep. So you, you were talking about this earlier. I mean, what, was it similar working with Dennis compared to working with Ricky, or, or were they were they very different in some ways? They were a little bit different drummers. They had their own flair as to how, how to approach these songs, and you can hear the difference, but not that either one of them, they were both very valid, you know. So it, for me, it was just getting used to playing with Dennis and like I said, uh, he was teaching me a lot. I mean, I was really learning. This is how to play a stadium. This is what you do. You you can't hear this in a stadium, but you can hear this. And of course, Dennis was, you know, a champion at playing as hard as he could. He actually broke a snare drum with a wooden <laughs> stick. You know what I mean? That's how hard he hit. And he would slam so hard, but really simply he was like a caveman up there you know what i'm saying <laughs> he's like he would just play this basic feel as hard as he could but with so much feeling behind it that you could swear that you could turn him down and it would still sound really great you know what i'm saying it's like this is how you play a stadium you have to be simple you got to tone yourself down play simply but with feeling and that essentially that's the lesson that i learned Bobby, uh, as you're talking, I'm, you're making it up, you know, Carl uh, ruled, if you will, the uh, rehearsals and it on stage and making sure that it uh, was true replication as much as possible. But then you're also talking about, you know, two different airplanes and there's other there's other dimensions to this. The, the being part of the Beach Boys, uh, did, did someone else uh, I don't know. Was there anybody calling the group together for conversations or? or... Well, you know, the the success of it was was really starting to to uh, I don't know how to put it. Um, everybody was 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 agreeing that look, we really got 
this is really going well here. You know, I mean, <laughs> we're all doing really well here. So there was a lot of agreement, you know, and that's, but you got to understand that, you know, it's like we were trying to make everybody happy and everyone means that means making each other happy. You understand? Um, you know, we, we, I tried just as hard to make Mike happy as I tried to make Alan happy as I tried to make, you know, who, whoever was there. Cause later on, you know, the Brian came back and, and, uh, and then Bruce came back and, and it was all doing very, very well. And, but you got to understand that we were like a family and, and what happens in family, I don't know about yours, but every once in a while you disagree on things. Yeah. <laughs> Families fight, you know, they do. And, and, and then they, they hug and get back together. And then they, you know, go through all these changes. They're just a family. They were no different than anybody else's family, except for they were incredibly talented. <laughs> right. And there was a lot of money on the table. But other than that, there was still this basic uh, group of people that were just really, really great people. You know what I mean? But, but even then, there were differences. But nothing that they, they couldn't overcome, thank God. And that um, that didn't didn't eventually end up making the group better and better and better. I think you know they're still they're still great. You know even though they're kind of fractioned off, and yeah. Mike has his band and 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 Brian has his band. They're both still valid, and I I love them both. And I'm always welcome at, at both events, and uh, and I'm always happy to be there because you know I'm is representing the same thing. It's it's that that magic that it took all of them to, to make that magic happen. And uh, it's still kind of a really important. And uh, I, I, I love it to this day. Mm. Bobby, um, you talked about Bruce Johnston coming back. Um, mm -hmm. Any story there? And how, did he just say, Hey, I think I'd like to come back or did someone well, grab him. Um, you know, I think that he was still involved with the beach boys, even though he wasn't, touring with them and was was helping in production of some of the songs and so i think it just was a natural course of events that he would want to come back i didn't realize at the time that you know how i didn't hadn't realized it quite so much that he had so much to do with it and during those days when he took over for glenn campbell um how much he he had done it on you know songs like uh, uh, california girls and god only knows he was all over those the songs yeah. and he had, and he was a fine writer and a fine musician in his own right, and so when he came back, I I kind of had to get used to it and go like, oh yeah, okay, that's Bruce's part. Okay, all right, he was on the record, you know. I I had to remind myself that you know, okay, don't just gotta take a little back seat here because here's the guy, and it was okay with me. It was totally okay with me because it was real, and um and Bruce was totally happy to be there. You know, he was. He was, you could tell that he was really, really having a good time with it. And who wouldn't? Yeah, I'd, I'd like to talk a bit more about uh, the L.A. album in a sec. But but some interesting things were happening in the interim. For example, the, the two hottest shows uh, of the summer of 1975 were the, um, the Rolling Stones Tour of the Americas and mm -hmm. uh, the Beachago, or however you pronounce it. Beachago. Uh, Beachago tour with Chicago. Uh, what do you remember about that? Legendary shows. Yeah, what a what a gas it was, you know, to to do that. Um, we had mentioned I was very familiar with Chicago as a band. Let's put it that way. Um, 
you, you never knew what to expect with the Beach Boys, what was going to happen next. But here Garcia is there, and he had the brilliant idea to meld the two bands. And um, prior to that, when I had been playing in Hawaii with the Poverty Train, we, we were a horn band. We, we had horns. And um, we did a bunch of Chicago songs. It was, you know, we I was well versed in Chicago. So when when they someone said, "Well, we're gonna do a tour with Chicago," and everybody's really excited about it, and I, I I was like, "God, me too! That is that is fantastic because they're two two really iconic bands here. You know, got to imagine how you know how big Chicago was in those days. Um, they were really something." And I just thought it was great. First of all, I loved horns. You know, I loved playing in, in a band that featured horns. And um, they were such great guys. And uh, the, the show just naturally worked together. We tried it in different ways where we opened for them and then the Chicago would, would, would play. Or it ended up being Chicago would open for the Beach Boys and then the Beach Boys would play. And then at the end, we would all come together and do a half an hour encore of us singing each other's songs. You know what I mean? Um, you know, Carl would do a Chicago song and, and, and Peter would do a beach boy song, you know, and it was yeah. like, Oh, cool. You know, there was like, because they could. And then we had this gang of voices now and a horn section. So what's not to like, you know, it was fun. I was like living the dream there. And they were such wonderful guys too, you know, to, to play with very talented musicians and I spent a lot of time with them, just just hanging out, you know, with Terry and Peter. Um, Peter and I used to do like little bits on stage where uh, we would be singing on the same mic, and um, we would do like little choreographed bits, <laughs> and, you know. And and Peter said, you know, God, we should give ourselves a name. We should call ourselves the Dupremes, you know. <laughs> and I said, yeah, let's call ourselves the Dupremes. And so <laughs> he would he would blurt that out, you know, during shows when we were singing together and we'd finish a song and he'd go, ladies and gentlemen, the Dupremes. And they would look at us like, what? You know, <laughs> but I mean, there's so many fun times. And then I remember like learning how to, you know, I play a little bit of guitar, you know, myself and did it with the Beach Boys for a little while, too. Um, in fact, when I first started singing Sail on Sailor, I, I, I played it on guitar. Wow. And wow. Uh, uh, when Carl asked me to do it, he, he handed me a, a black uh, Les Paul and I said, okay, you know, and cause he knew I used to, he used to borrow my guitar. I used to carry a guitar on the road with me wherever I went and, and pass it around. Carl would borrow it. Eddie Carter would borrow it. Somebody would be writing and need a guitar. So I had mine and my, I still have it. It's a, it's a 1974 guild acoustic that I bought with my first paycheck from the beach boys, but I still have it. And it's had all these famous hands on it, you know, but it's like, we, we would, you know, borrow things from each other and just kind of, I, I got kind of sidetracked here, but, but we were always, somebody was always writing, somebody was always singing. And, and I had that guitar with me to do it with. And, and Terry Kath taught me how to play. Um, wishing you were here in a hotel room in Chicago uh, okay. when we were getting ready to do that, that song. And of course the uh, Carl and them had recorded the, the voices on it, which is beautiful. It really came out great up at the caribou. And, um, 
and I said, you know, Terry, that's a great song. And he goes, oh, you want to learn how to play it? And I went, yes. So we sat in his hotel room at in at the at the White Hall in Chicago, and he showed me how to play "Wishing You Were Here." And I was I had the best time doing that with him. Great story. You you mentioned Ed Carter. Um, yeah. He was, in my mind, one of the very first band members, uh, other than yeah. the principals. Uh, yeah. Uh, what can you tell us about him? I don't I don't find a lot of information on him. You know, Eddie. Um, Eddie was a great musician, I know, and that, that's that's what Carl liked about him. He was one of Carl's favorite musicians because he could play bass, he could play guitar, um, and Eddie was just steady, you know. He was just always there. He just could play, had a great uh, uh, education in music, and he could play a lot of different styles. And, um, you know, he was on some of those early recordings in the 60s. I think he played the guitar solo on Bluebirds Over the Mountain. Yeah. You know, and, and in such a fine fashion that it was like going, wow, you know. He, he was the oldest band member that, you know, that, uh, that, that started playing with them besides the five original guys. There was uh, Eddie Carter. And um, he was, like I said, one of Carl's favorite musicians. He's a great guy. He plays in my group now. You know, I have my own group called California Surf Incorporated, right. and Eddie's one of my guys. Um, he he's great at plays guitar with me, but but he's a he's adept at playing either bass or guitar. Skilled and, musician. Uh, you know, he 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 showed me a lot of stuff too on guitar. He gave me uh, a lot of charts to to learn how to play those songs on the guitar. And uh, he's just a fantastic musician and a really good friend of mine. We should mention uh, the other members of California Surf Incorporated are Randall Kirsch, Christian Love, Mike's son, Sterling Smith. Sorry? Mm -hmm. No, go, go keep going. You got and, it. And uh, quite often, Probe and Gregory. Quite often, Probe and Gregory. You know, I started this band, and the only thing, there are plenty of, of Beach Boy cover bands out in the world, and I think it's wonderful that everybody's doing their part to keep the music alive, you know, and I, I support them all. But the thing was, I want my band to be kind of special. So I insisted that everybody in my band was a Beach Boy at one point. Um, they, they, had to have, they had to have had a luggage tag and a rooming list <laughs> and, 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 a, a, and uh, an itinerary. I, I'm not talking about having a cup of coffee with them, but you had to be in the Beach Boys for a while. And if you can do that, that's why I have such a great pool of talent to choose from because everybody that was ever in that band knew exactly what they were doing. And um, so that in my band, it's very easy to put together a group of different people. Like I said, I've used uh, even uh, Rob Bonfiglio has been in my band too. He played with yeah. us for a while, yeah. um, you know, and the, uh, the other guys that you mentioned, they're all super good musicians and they've all, you know, Probin was on the on the 50th anniversary tour. Um, a lot of guys that all know their stuff. You know what I mean? They're worth their worth their metal. They were Beach Boys, and that's that's what. So I interchange people depending on who who's working with who when. You know what I mean? Sure. Because it's like we, we all have families. We're all we're all grown up now, and we all have responsibilities. So I just figure whenever something's not happening this this fella still needs to you know keep playing and working and stuff and so i started california surf incorporated and, and we're really happy to do our part to to keep um, 
all the Brian's, you know, the Beach Boys music alive with everybody. We're, we're, we're proud to, to still be able to do it. Bobby, let me ask you to take it a step further, kind of, uh, you know, look in the crystal ball is what I'm thinking of here. Like when the all the principals are no longer touring. Uh, so uh, well, any idea what the what the licensed Beach Boys will do? Uh, you know, um, a lot of cover bands, but what would be right. the official Beach Boys? Any idea? Well, so it's my understanding that that uh, when it's over, it's over. Um, there won't there won't be anyone. I, I I don't know. You know, I wasn't privy to these. You know, sure. the exact the exact terms that were drawn out between the guys. But I just know that uh, the music's always going to be alive, and I'm going to do my part to keep it that way. Um, yeah. I'm not sure what anyone else is going to be doing. I just know that I'm going to be doing my best to uh, to keep it going. Well, we're grateful. Um, I wanted to ask you about, okay, so we talked about uh, Bichago, but then in 76, the whole new thing, Brian comes back. So what, oh. what, what was Brian like, you know, in those uh, initial <laughs> concerts? <laughs> oh, man, what a joy. You know what I mean? It's like I still remember early on when I joined the band and I was at, at Brother Records, you know, in Santa Monica, the studio. Spent a lot of time there. Dennis was calling me and Carl and I would – would fool around with stuff in there. In fact, one night he called me in and he played guitar and I played drums and we banged out uh, Angel Come Home, um, just the two of us. Wow. And everything came after that night. The first two things on that track was was guitar, Carl's guitar and my drums. But we were always doing stuff there. And it was like, it was, it was a great place to, to be creative, that studio. Uh, so many wonderful things happened there. So many great things out of nowhere happened. And one night I was there just fooling around and, and doing some recording, a little recording, a little fooling around. And Brian walks in and and quite happily and just lumbers in with, you know, in his robe and, uh, <laughs> and just started sitting down and we started jamming with him. And I, I think we were doing, um, you know, ding dang for about an hour. You know, <laughs> straight without stopping. Ding, ding, dang, ding. You know, it was great. Uh, and that was just Brian letting off steam, you know. And he was like, hi, you know, how are you? And I was like, I, I couldn't believe it. Oh, Brian, you know. Yeah. And he was just this lumbering giant who who just came in with a six-pack of San Miguel beer and started playing, you know. And it was like, okay, let's play. So Carly Munoz was there and a couple of other guys and um, we just kept playing and you know meeting him and then later on a few years later when he decided you know the Brian's back tour um, which was really great to play with him um, you know he was still just coming out of the just coming out of the the bedroom you know I mean yeah. literally he had been you know pretty much a hermit for a while you saw the when the, the I don't know if you ever saw that Saturday Night Live sketch yeah. with Lucian Ackroyd when they go and drag him out of his house, yeah, <laughs> yeah, take him to the beach. You know, I thought that was fantastic. Uh, you know, and uh, but then he started coming out, and I don't know. They dressed him in these robes and stuff, and then you could tell he wasn't very comfortable wearing that stuff. But but he was, you know, still afraid of flying and stuff. But you know, but but you could you could see that he still had a, a real joy being there, and, and you know. We tried our best to please him, 
and uh, the fans were just ecstatic that you know Brian's back. You know, look at here, here's the guy, you know, playing again, and it was it was wonderful to have him around again, and uh, and uh, you could you could just sing with him if, to calm him down. All you had to do was just walk up to him and start singing, you know. And it's, it was that simple. Then all of a sudden he'd stop worrying and he starts singing with you. And next thing you know, you'd be having a conversation. And it was, you know, we, we did our best to, to make him comfortable, although he always wasn't comfortable, but, but we did our best and we were really grateful that he was there. Do you feel that uh, there was any misuse of Brian in those situations? And I'm not asking you to name names or anything, but just sometimes I'd watch him on stage during that time or, you know, seeing videos of, of uh, those concerts then. And, and it just seems he, he should be, he should be anywhere, but there. And that's just my personal opinion. But, but was, was he okay with that? Even though he didn't look like he was okay with it. Well, you never knew what was running through his head. He had a lot of demons, you know, Yeah. a lot of stuff that was bugging him and maybe his medication wasn't right that day or, or, or he was worried about, he was worried about Carney and Wendy or, or he was, you know, not comfortable with the situation somehow because he would, you know, kind of get frightened sometimes, you know, I mean, he, it didn't take much to send him off sometimes if there, if there were too many beach balls flying in the air, it'd freak him out, you know, okay. it'd be like, no, stop. He'd stand up and say, stop throwing those, stop it. And you could tell it was bugging him, you know, for whatever reason. Um, I wasn't privy to, to everything that, that he was worried about, but, you know, like I said, we, we all did our best to calm him down, but sometimes you knew that he was just a little bit uncomfortable. You mentioned being in Brothers Studios. Of course, yeah. uh, you, you worked on uh, Dennis's Pacific Ocean Blue album and, and the yeah. proposed follow-up, uh, Bamboo. So, so tell me about working with Dennis in the studio. I mean, Pacific Ocean Blue is a fantastic record. Oh my gosh, yes. You know, I was uh, so grateful um, that, that so many times Dennis would call me and say, you know, get your ass down to the studio now. And I, I, I'd be, you know, at times going like, ah, oh, I've, you know, I'm tired or, you know, I'm just like, well, I just got to bed a few hours ago <laughs> or, you know, I was being bad. But, but then I was always really, really super glad that I went down there because I'll tell you one time I went down he was great to work with. Um, he would always let you play what you wanted. He never told you what to play. He let you play what you felt. That's what was great about working with Dennis Wilson was that he he allowed you to be you. And he did that with everybody. And he did that with me. And he would he would keep the good things and then suggest, you know, other things now and then. And then sometimes you hit on something and he'd just go wild and go like, wait we got to do this right. And then he'd run around the studio fixing things and come back and go, okay, now do it. But I remember it was always a great experience. And I was always so grateful. One time I went in there and I wasn't too keen on it, but I lived about an hour from the studio. It took me an, a full hour to get there. <clears throat> and I, I got there and I walked into the studio and there's a fellow sitting there with a bass guitar. And Dennis goes, did you say hi to Jamie over here? Jamie Jamerson and I, oh, wow. I went, I went, James Jamerson, and he said, "Yeah, hi, I'm James." And I was like, 
Dennis, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Thank you. I get to play with the guy and record with the guy that wrote the book on Motown bass play. I mean, this to me was just phenomenal. This is the kind of things that would happen with you never knew what to expect, <laughs> so, you know, and, and we were doing stuff, trying out stuff. And then, like I said, he'd get excited and then we'd stay longer and do try it different ways. But, but that was one time when I was really super glad that he called me and asked me to do that. And, um, Carly Munoz had written a few songs as well that ended up on Bamboo. Mm -hmm. And I had known those songs already because of my association with Carly. I knew about those songs already. Constant Companion, which is a fantastic song. Um, you know, different stuff that, that Carly wrote was, some of it made it onto Bamboo. But um, I remember all the stuff that I worked on, on Pacific Ocean Blue, I thought was fantastic. And then some of it ended up on LA Light. Um, that I thought was was for a Pacific Ocean Blue, but it actually was for LA Light. And um, by then I was very comfortable with everybody in the studio. And we were able to do some really good songs for all three of those records. Do you remember which tracks you worked on uh, for Pacific Ocean Blue? And, uh, uh, and what, about, what about James Jamerson? What did he do on that album? He played bass on, I believe it was Dreamer, okay. uh, which I, which I, decided to do some stuff on and then that's when Dennis got real real excited and said here let's let's put a um, a, a, a sheet a bed sheet over all the drums so I was playing some really quick percussive stuff that he liked but thought it was just ringing too much so he put a bed sheet so I basically couldn't see the drums anymore they were just a sheet <laughs> <laughs> and he said let's try it now and I was like Okay, I think I know where everything is. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we did Dreamer, I believe, and um, that's that's the track I think that that Jamie played on too, and and we played that with the with the sheets on the drums, and um, I also did Lady Linda with with Al, which went on which went on uh, the L.A. Light album at Western Recorders in Hollywood, and um, he came up to me on the road and and said were you in a marching band? And I said, yes, I was in a marching band for four years in high school. And, and I wrote cadences too. You want to hear him? He's like, no, no, that's great. So he said, you're, you're going to play drums on Lady Linda. And I went, great. What's Lady Linda? And he said, well, let's, let's go to the studio. We went to set, to Hollywood, to Western recorders and recorded that there. And at the beginning of the uh, song, there's a little, a little riff that is kind of like a marching drum. Um, with with when the song actually starts after the piano intro right right and uh it came out very very well um you and i i recorded with that cushion mm -hmm. with dennis which was a very beautiful dennis wilson ballad um for pacific ocean blue and uh, i played drums on um let's see um it was the uh, uh constant companion carly muñoz song that dennis did which ended up on bamboo um I, I, in Florida, was called to the studio. Uh, we were staying at the Doral Country Club outside Miami, and uh, Dennis was at Criterion, very famous studio uh, in in uh, northern Miami. And um, we did, uh, I think, Love Surrounds Me there, another great Dennis Wilson song. Yeah. And like I said, uh, um, that those those three – those are some of the songs. I never knew which albums they were going to go on. So when I go to remember what 
albums I played on. I just remember the songs I played on, and they ended up all over the place. But um, like that, Lady Linda, Good Timing, I sang on that with uh, the choir, and I sang on Lady Linda, and as well as playing drums on it. And uh, uh, let's see what else is on Pacific Ocean Blue. Um, just a few tracks. I'm trying to remember now. Dreamer. Um, and, uh, oh, I'll probably remember all of them when I'm done talking to you. But <laughs> but uh, anyway, I, they, they scattered around and I was able to participate. Uh, I guess they trusted me to, to play with them in the studio. Dennis seems like such a, a contradictory person i mean he he he's like you know on one hand he's the wild guy the partying guy and, and yet he had this capacity that i think surprised a lot of people that he could write this music which had such strong feeling how, how did you how did he reconcile these these two parts to himself you know it's like if you can imagine being in his shoes being brian wilson's little brother and trying to write anything <laughs> you know, in that shadow, but yet he was so strong-willed and so adamant about his emotions and his feelings that he was able to transcribe and write at first, you know, like a drummer and then later on more like a, like a composer, you know, a, a true composer. The things that he wrote, I think, were just feelings that he had. And, you know, he did pretty darn good because – he wrote some really brilliant stuff. He really did. I mean, I think he was a really great songwriter. I, I really, really believe that. Um, I think that his spirituality came out a lot. He was a very spiritual guy. If you listen to Dreamer, to me, that is him explaining to everybody that he, in fact, was a dreamer, you know, that he could he could write and he could perform and, 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 and uh, display his emotions with the best of them with anybody and, and hold his own. And he, he did, you know, you listen to that, really, really listen to that song, you know, let your, let the wind carry your blues away. You know, so I'm trying to say is have a better day. Find love. That's it. You know, uh, very simple. I know a carpenter who had a dream. They killed a man, but they couldn't kill the dream. They said it was easy, you know, and it, it was not, it was not for him, but he, he managed to pull it off and he very, very complex individual, very, very emotional, very giving, but giving to, you know, to, to, he had faults too, you know, he wasn't perfect. He had a lot of problems too, but he also had some really, really tremendous and really wonderful traits as a human being. Great tribute. Well said, Bobby. Uh, there were a couple of instances of, of bloodletting in the late 70s. So in 1977, uh, Mike fired a lot of the touring band, uh, including Billy Hinchy. And, you know, Billy told me that, you know, Mike, want, you, you mentioned the two factions, the meditators and the non-meditators. And I think yeah. it's it's sort of the non-meditators non that bit the dust there. And uh, then again, in 1979, some more, more people were let go. But you uh, you survived those. I did, you know, I just I just wanted to always bring my very best to 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 the show. I was there for the music. I wasn't there for any politics. I wasn't there to get over on anybody or to be or to choose sides. I just knew that the music demanded my full attention, and I think the fact that um, that I dedicated myself to that and and always gave my best. I mean, I don't care if we we're playing in a cow arena. 
I always dressed nice and I always showed up on time and I did my best, you know, which, which I think got me, got me favor with, with everybody in the band. Cause they knew I, I was sincere about my efforts. You know, I, I didn't try to meddle with any of the politics. I didn't try to get on anybody's good side or bad side. I was just there for one reason and one reason only that was, that was to glorify and, and do the best I could to make, keep that music alive. You know, I, I don't know what happened individually with everybody. I know that at one point I messed up pretty bad. I was going through a bad marriage and, and, and destroying myself much like other people were doing, you know, and, and I, and I was, you know, had to, had to step away for a while. I just had to, because, uh, I was doing more harm than good, and that and that was that were right. It was right to do that, um, to to figure out what I was, you know, really there for. Because I kind of lost sight of it for a while, but then in the end, I think I've always, always, you know, really, really, really loved it. And um, I just know that people had problems that they were, we're just human, you know. People make mistakes. Um, it broke my heart when Dennis died. It broke my heart when Carl died. I, you know, I felt like so much of the heart of that band was, was now missing, you know, that, um, yeah, I just had to do other things, you know, I had to explore other things and uh, other avenues. And I started acting and, and doing some musical stuff on TV. And, uh, you know, I just, but I always, my heart was always there, you know, uh, one incident that impacted you, a uh, notorious incident, was when Dennis and Mike got into a scuffle um, at the Universal Amphitheater, 1979. Yeah. Were you there for that? I was. I was there. Um, ducking. <laughs> <laughs> I did a lot of ducking that night. Um, you know, I first of all, I invited my mom to come. You know, we were playing at the Greek, I think it was, right? Well, that, well, that incident happened. I think so. Um, and uh, I invited my mom, sent a limousine to pick her up. And the evening started off really in a good, positive way. And uh, my mom showed up backstage at the Greek with a jar of salsa that she had made. And uh, the road manager, Jason Rafalian and, and Dennis started fighting over it. And I thought that was hysterical, you know, <laughs> that fighting over my mom's salsa. And then this was a lot of things happened after that because, because then – Mike and Dennis got into it, and so it became quite evident on stage that they were having a row, you know, and it was like it was getting to the – I was always ready to jump in at any given moment. That was my job. Get ready. Be ready at any given – even in the middle of a song. If I need to get up there, get up there. That's all. Was this obvious to the audience while this was going on, Bobby? Or this, just was in, this was in front of the audience, yes. Yeah that all of a sudden a, a snare drum went flying across the stage and I was like, okay, here we go. So I immediately jumped up and they set another snare drum there and, and Dennis, you know, and Mike had to be pulled apart. And uh, it was, it was really, it was really too bad. It was really a shame, you know, that that had to happen. And I think that uh, it was kind of embarrassing, but you know, and then, and then here's my mom sitting out there in the audience. And <laughs> I, I sang Sail on Sailor for her that night. That was the, the best thing that happened. <laughs> you know, and then um, and then they, 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 Dennis just took off. I mean, he just left. And I was like, oh, no, no. So I played the rest of the show. And, and um, 
then we all went home afterwards and uh, we had to play in Salt uh, uh, Park City, Utah the next day. And um, it was, they couldn't find Dennis anywhere. And it was like uh, the road manager, Jason and I were sharing a car to the, to the airport and so much had gone on that we both kind of overslept and we missed our flight, you know, and it was kind of a drag and too bad. But then Jason said, go, come on, get it back in the car. We're going to Burbank and we chartered a jet and, and flew to Salt Lake city where we chartered a helicopter and flew up the Canyon to park city oh, and, buzzed, and buzzed the crowd. I made the pilot buzz the crowd. I made it. <laughs> and then I, we landed backstage and, <laughs> Mike came up to the helicopter as I got up because there was no Dennis. I had to be there. And, and so Mike came up to the copter afterwards and said, Figaro, you so-and-so. <laughs> I won't repeat what he said. <laughs> I said, Hey, let's play, you know? And he's like, okay. So we, but that's a, that was an offshoot of what happened that night at the Greek. The fact that, that it got, it got boiled over into, uh, into this all out fist fight night. It, it was heartbreaking. It really was. I, I was, uh, you know, hopeful that it could, they could repair that somehow. It just never happened. Yes. Yeah, was that somewhat of a breaking point, turning point, or just uh, in between the two of them? Well, it was in, 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 in a way that had been building up towards that. It wasn't the first time. Yeah. And it, it wasn't the last either. So, um, Dennis was, was, you know, just getting a little too carried away with his, with his own problems sure. and, uh, and, uh, it didn't help things. And, and it kind of, you know, just kind of made things, you know, a little darker and it, it was sad to, to witness. So you took over, uh, Basically, you were the sole drummer for uh, for a while there because Dennis uh, got suspended from the band. Yeah, he was in and out, and I was playing. The show was supposed to be for Dennis and I, but you know it ended up being me most of the time. And then uh, until we got someone else to to come in, and then there were two of us again. But but then by then Dennis had passed away, and and uh, we were all very sad when that happened. We missed him a lot. I have to tell you this story. The first Beach Boys show I ever saw was July 12th, 1979 at the Montreal Forum. I was just 10 years old. And oh. so, you know, it was this distant memory for me. And I and I sort of always thought, well, I guess I saw Dennis one time because he was around. Uh, he was still around in those days. Sure. Uh -huh. Now I realize it wasn't Dennis. It was you that was playing drums that night. <laughs> Probably. Probably. Uh, any, any recollection of that night? It certainly made an impact on me. Well, it was a... It was a good show. I think we had just come back from Japan. Yeah, um, we had we had gone to play the Japan. You said seventy nine. Yeah, that's right. Okay, that was we had just come back from Japan, and uh, had done the uh, Anoshima Beach show over there on the beach over there, and it was great. We received really well. We all came back with these really newfangled inventions called the Walkman. <laughs> Ooh, there was one on my bed and i said what the heck is that and it said walkman on it and i put it on and went oh big deal you know because i was used to carrying around this huge two-ton nakamichi you know to hear tapes and stuff with 
And then I turned the volume up and went, oh, this is going to be big, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and so we each got one, and I bought an extra one and brought it home to the States. But you got to realize they, they weren't even here yet. Oh, there, wow. was, there was no Walkman in America yet. But they had been given to us by Sony. And uh, <laughs> so I was playing it for my friends, and they were loving it. But I remember having that with me and and playing um, that show. I had met some people in in, in Tokyo that were were from Montreal, so they were at the show. Just some just some friends, you know, and fans and stuff that were just happened to be there. And um, I know that uh, it was one of the first times that I was, you know, playing the show. I was playing the show, you know, right. um, but it was it was a lot of work, and and I was up for it, and and. Uh, Carl complimented me afterwards that you know we had we had done well, so I was happy. That's that's what I remember about that, Joe. Um, did you develop some back problems as a result of your drumming? I was playing too much and I was pushing myself too hard, and I woke up one day and my back was just killing me. So I had to step away for a while, and uh, I did. I had to leave for a while as they were getting ready to go to South Africa um, to do the Botswana shows. And um, I just couldn't bear to a flight that long. My back was hurting so bad. I had, I had, I compressed my spine in the back to where it was pinching and I had to have therapy and I was going crazy and, and I had to just step away for a while and um, get therapy and, uh, finally seeing a chiropractor and I started swimming a lot and that, that got me out of my funk. I, I started getting strong again. And then uh, very soon after that, I, I, I rejoined the band. So uh, Mike Kowalski is somebody we should mention here. So, I mean, here's a guy that yeah, had yeah. been in and out of the band since 1968. Uh, and, and I believe he was the one that came in to, to fill in for you when, when you had that injury. Right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, he and, did. And then the two of you, like you worked together the way, sort of the way you had with, with Ricky and Dennis, the two of you were but, like yeah, alternating. That's exactly right. In, in alternate, the Pony Express, we were like, you know, tag, you're it. Um, we were like a tag team that um, could play. You know, we both go back and forth between percussion and drums. And, and that worked out very well, too. You know, I'm, I'm writing it all down. My, my wife, Joanne, is helping me chronicle a lot of my memories and stuff that I, including the, the early days of seeing the Beach Boys at the, at the teen club in Azusa and, and, uh, and everything that led up to me actually joining the Beach Boys and a lot of the experiences that I had then. And, I, and I, I'd really like to write about them. But in the meantime, you know, I just want everybody to know that how grateful I am that I, I got to do that and that I would, I, I would do it in a heartbeat all over again if I could. In the meantime, I have my group, um, California Surf Incorporated. When when the music scene finally opens up again, I, I hope that, you know, you guys will come and see us and realize, you know, we're, we're all the guys that we help make the sound. We help we help record that sound. And, and, and you know us. You've seen us on the stage with the Beach Boys, and we all just want to keep the music going. And, and I hope to see everybody again someday. You know, I just, uh, I'm not done. You mentioned your wife, Joanne. I think there's an interesting story there because you, you met her through the Beach Boys. I did. I did. She's, she's this sweet little girl from the Midwest that Carl and I took a shine to and just said, well, isn't she nice? 
and she would show up with this other group of girls. And uh, I met her in um, 85, I believe. And uh, she was, you know, 15 years old. Don't get me wrong. I, it was, we, we, I shook hands with Carl. We protect her and that's it. Okay. Uh, so we, you know, really, you know, she, she was always a joy to have around. She, she was uh, unlike a lot of people and never asked for anything, never wanted anything, just was happy to be there, you know. And I always liked her. She was such a positive little, little person sitting there. And so we invited her and she would come to the shows and, and um, we, we liked each other very much, but we were just friends then. Yeah. And, uh, but we, we had a lot of time hanging out and, and just, you know, talking about our families and stuff. And then, um, you know, years go by and we're, we're separated. She's in Michigan, I'm in California. And I ran into her again at, a, uh, at the Carl Wilson benefit at the, um, at UCLA, at Royce Hall for the, uh, you know, the, the show that they had uh, uh, Eric Clapton at and, and a, lot of, a lot of different people came to play, you know, and pay their homage to Carl Wilson. And there she was, only all grown up now. And so we started talking and exchanging uh, numbers, and then we started talking online, and and then uh, we started seeing each other after that. And uh, uh, almost exactly, well, exactly five years ago uh, is when uh, we got married. I, I drove her out here from, from Detroit and figured oh, this long relationship, this long distance relationship I've had enough of. So I, I played out there with my friend Ricky Martin, may he rest, um, Carl Wilson's brother-in-law, uh, son of Dean Martin. Yep. And we were playing some shows with him in Canada and we came back and Joanne met me and we drove all the way back from there, stopped at Ricky's ranch in Utah and then came to California and then we got married. So it ended up really good that, uh, we, we were great friends, and then and now we're, we're husband and wife. That's a great story. What a great story. Uh, amen. So hurry up and get that book done so we can have part two of this podcast series with you. We're, we're ready. Okay. And, oh, I want to mention, too, that I we did a couple of songs. We recorded a couple of tunes with California Surf Incorporated. One I wrote uh, called Playground that about my relationship with Dennis mm. and the things that we used to say to each other. And the phrases that I remember that we used to dwell on and talk about and the things that he would say to me and the things that I would say to him backwards. It's a, it's a really nice, if, if you keep that in mind, when you hear it, you can, you can listen to it on, on any um, Spotify, you can download it on Amazon. You, it's all over the place. It's called playground by California surf incorporated featuring Bobby Figueroa. And um, we, yeah. I, I'd like you, if you really love the Beach Boys, give it a listen and, and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about when I sing this song. So I, I want to, you know, have all the fans and stuff. Uh, give it a listen and, and tell me what you think. That's Thanks great. So Thanks so much, Bobby, for uh, coming on our podcast and, and talking so open-heartedly about all your uh, memories of working with the Beach Boys. We really appreciate it and uh, look, look forward to having you on again. And to all the listeners out there, thanks for tuning in. Come back next time and we'll do it again. Thank okay. you.